Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Happy New Year, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Tech Talking Year with Matthew Dickerson. And welcome to any miserable POMs who are struggling for joy in the Ashes series of 2021-22. And on that note, Matt, you had a chance to drop by the SCG just recently, I understand. Yeah, I've been there the last week, and gee, aren't we good at naming grounds here in Australia? Sydney Cricket Ground. Let's see. We've got a ground that we play cricket, cricket on, on in, Sydney. in Sydney. What are we going to call that? Let's let's get a committee together and see what we come up with. I mean, across the world, we see places like Lords or mm. Old Trafford or Centurion Park. But here in Australia, we have the Melbourne Cricket, cricket ground, ground, the Sydney Cricket Ground. <laughs> I mean, and the Adelaide Oval. The Adelaide Oval. It's oval-shaped it's and right. it's in Adelaide. And we got a bit creative with that one, didn't we? We didn't put the word cricket in there, that one. But what's been interesting, so I have been down at the SCG the last week watching the cricket. And yes, you, you are right. The poor old Poms have been doing it pretty tough, but I don't feel sorry for them at no. all. <laughs> but what's been interesting is I've gone to the cricket for a lot of years and it's actually a slightly different feel now with technology because in the past – There'd be an appeal, there'd be someone, you, there'd be an LBW appeal, for example. The players would go up and the crowd would be hanging there waiting on the umpire's finger. And as soon as the umpire's finger went up or not, the crowd would go delirious or yeah. not, depending on which team. And it was almost for. instantaneous, right? It was yeah. instant. And the, the whole crowd would go up. Whereas now, you see the appeal from the players and the finger mic up from the umpire and the crowd just doesn't cheer quite as loud because they know there's a DRS, a decision yeah. review system <laughs> appeal on the way. They'll so throw the, their heart into it. <laughs> that's right. Then the, the player will do it. And then the crowd is hanging on the screen. So they're not waiting for the umpire anymore. They used to all stare at the umpire. They're all staring at the screen and yeah. you'll see the process go through each step. You know, it's a legal delivery. The front foot's okay. And then go through it pitched in line or it pitch, didn't pitch outside leg, for example, and hit in line. And then you're waiting for the, the stumps missing or hitting or umpire's call. Yeah. And as soon as that part goes up, you see the players go up or not and the crowd <laughs> goes off then. So it's actually given that slightly different feel to the process. And even when there's this huge appeal and no movement from the umpire, the crowd's still getting excited because they think there's going to be a, a DRS on the way here. The players, and you're just <laughs> watching the captain to see if he puts his, his fist to his arm to, to signal a review. So it's it's kind of this technology, which I think is the right thing to do. Mm. But sometimes some people talk about it takes away from that instant moment. It's that instant yes or no, or imagine you get the wicket, as happened in this particular test, Mitchell Stark got a wicket and it was a no ball, so they're all pretty excited about it, and it's not even like you're reviewing the decision, but the third umpire is just checking a few things, oh whoops, sorry Mitchell, you've overstepped, now imagine from the batsman's point of view, he's over the moon, but (laughs) from the crowd being an Aussie crowd, and of course the players on the field, they're obviously way over the top in excitement and then completely deflated with this decision, so again, the right decisions are coming through, but it's, it's just changed the flavour, the nature of things, just that little bit with technology involved. Yeah, I used to love the fact that sport used to have that human element and referees and umpires would make a mistake and, oh, yeah, people would curse and carry on. Yeah. Uh, and then we brought in the um, the video umpire and, and that's changed enormously. But anyway, there's no you going get, back. You get the right decisions. And I, I know when I was playing sport as a kid, whether it was cricket or football, it was always ingrained on us from the coach. You accept the umpire's decision and you, you just... Know. Move on. It's so a human element. That's right. You'd, you'd get a, a bad call in cricket and you'd walk off straight away. 
thinking quietly, maybe not so quietly sometimes, but usually quietly to yourself going, damn, that was the wrong decision. There was no way I hit that and they've appealed and that's yeah. it. But but again, you didn't stand there and argue with the umpire. You didn't stand there and say, show me the video the replay. The decision is final. It was That's exactly it. It was final and you just moved on after that. So it's taken that away, but mm. there's been some examples. I mean, Shane Warne was one when he was on 99 and got out caught in the boundary. Mm. It was a no ball that was delivered then. So he would have had a his one test century if had it been some sort of decision review system. So talk to Shane about that. I'm sure he'd say the DRS <laughs> is a great idea. So anyway, it's been an interesting week at the cricket, but also just that different flavour that I've been picking up. Again, I love technology, but you're right, sometimes it's okay not to have the technology, I think. So this week I had a really interesting experience where I was in a taxi for a long ride. I had to take a long taxi ride in Sydney. And I love chatting to taxi drivers. They probably hate seeing me come up, but I love chatting to them about... But aren't, aren't taxi drivers just like the biggest chatters in the world? They, they love sometimes they are. Sometimes they have their headphones in and they yeah, start listening enough. to music or talking to people or whatever. But I like to chat to them because I, I love the business model of a taxi. I always just, I'm fascinated. Do you own this taxi? Do you dry hire it? Do you wet hire it? How many other people drive this taxi? All these things. And I, I love to run through the numbers with them. I, I try and give them some advice sometimes. I don't know if they listen to it or not. But, <laughs> but it's always that sort of concept about it. It's a, a business. It's a simple, relatively simple, I suppose, business that mm. has got a whole range of variables there. And then you've got someone who came in with a legal competition in Uber and that threw the whole taxi game in disarray for a while, but they're still going along okay. But the conversation I had with this guy was about electric taxis. And we started talking about numbers. And by the end of the conversation, by the end of the trip, he was convinced. I'm, I guarantee the next day he went out and bought an electric ah. vehicle because he just started to stack Sold. up the numbers. And the first thing he said was, those electric vehicles, they're too expensive. And I said, well, you might think that because the ticket price looks expensive, but let's talk about your numbers. How much petrol do you spend a month? Oh, about $1,000. How much do you do drive each day? Uh, how many kilometres? Never more than 300, probably 200, but maximum 300. Well, if you did that in an electric vehicle, your petrol bill would go from $1,000 to maybe 200 he goes wow keep talking then we talk about the maintenance costs then we talk about a whole range of other things and then when we got to the the final conclusion of well how much deal would it be to buy it and if i just lease that then per month i'd be paying less when i combine my lease fee and my fuel fee where do i get one of these sounds fantastic so <laughs> it's just a different way of thinking about things because people do see that ticket price and they get scared but when you talk about it, especially the maintenance costs, he talked about some of the maintenance costs he has of his taxi. It was incredible because they do a fair few kilometres. 300 a day doesn't sound like much, but hold on. Every day. That's right, 300 a day every single day. Yeah. You know, there's in, in a week, there's 2,000 kilometres. In a month, that might be 8,000, 9,000 kilometres. That's a fair mm. bit. When the ABS says the average number of kilometres per year for the average driver is about 14,000 kilometres, well, the taxi driver's doing almost the national average in a month. So they're racking up some kilometres. So maintenance is a big issue there. The only downside I said in an electric car is you'll go through tyres quicker because you just can't help yourself but put your foot down. Uh, <laughs> and tell me, as you got out of the taxi, did you do a mic drop? You know, the, <laughs> as I you walked up? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got a bunch of stories for EV fans today, not just that one. Even if it's a bit slow to take off in Australia, the rest of the world seems pretty keen. And so... Speaking of keen, actually, I'm pretty keen on where robotics is going, and Matt's got a pretty cool update on that front too. And you've got some fantastic news about solar panels for people who would if they could but can't. But let's get started with a funny little snippet. Pop your tinfoil hats on for this one, folks. 5G networks. The promises came from telecoms of faster speeds and higher capacity. And the warnings came from the conspiracy theorists and internet researchers of devilry and disease. And so, to protect their flock, 
a company has developed and marketed a protective anti-5G necklace that comes to you packaged in the email with a free dose of irony. Matt, firstly, with it, will this magical amulet protect me from 5G? He asks, expecting the, no, the answer no. <laughs> I, I don't think we need protection from 5G, but no, we don't. I, I love the fact that the Authority for Nuclear Safety and Radiation Protection, otherwise known as ANVS, it's a Dutch nuclear safety authority, has weighed in on this. So suddenly the... 5G conspiracy theorists are going, oh, fantastic, the ANVS is coming in and making comment about this. All those years have been saying that something's been going on. They've been waiting to hear from them. Oh, and finally, finally. And what they've said is, please don't wear this 5G necklace because the 5G necklace is actually putting out ionising radiation. Uh, that can do damage <laughs> to you. So so there's a radioisotope in there somewhere. <laughs> why? I don't know. Why no. would they put some sort of radioisotope uh, in an anti-5G necklace? I don't know whether they wanted to make it do something, but it's one of those things that, oh no, I'm being damaged by 5G. Look, I've got this red mark on my skin. Lucky I've got this necklace on, which is the thing causing the red skin so it just seems absolutely crazy some, some kind of like noise cancelling headphones or something that send out other ultrasonic sound <laughs> it's exactly right yeah it's, right i don't know why someone would make it that way normally you'd think it would be dearer to make it that way surely it would have been cheaper for them just to put a bit of plastic together mm. and say hey it's a 5g necklace or an anti-5g necklace that protects you and people would go okay i'll buy one of those yeah. why would you bother about putting something in there but they have done that and in doing so well they're just doing damage to people. So Goodness the me. ANVS said that if you wore this, for example, all throughout the year, you would probably get some red skin. You'd probably even get a little bit flaky on the skin. And if you kept wearing it, you probably might get to the stage where you might actually create some cancer cells. So I don't want to get hurt by 5G, so I'll wear this thing that's going to do damage to me. And so, of course, anyone that had something happen to them would say, gee, Lucky I had this on, because imagine how bad it would have been if I hadn't have had this on. Uh, the irony of, uh, I don't trust the science in 5G, but I will trust the science in this <laughs> magical amulet. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But that would be assuming, James, that there is some science in this amulet. And there is some science in this amulet, but oh. it's science that's going to do damage to you. So, yeah. so if you see an anti-5G necklace out there, just have a look at the warning, see if the ANVS has got something to say about it. And I'm sure other nuclear authorities around the world would have something to say about it as well. This is just the first one that happens to have come out about it. They're trying to protect their citizens, obviously. But And I think if the solution comes out of a B-grade 80s movie, um, <laughs> then it's probably too good to be true? <laughs> probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I just I love the whole thing about how is the necklace, just let's go through the science, let's pretend 5G was doing your damage. How's a necklace going to protect mm. other parts of your body or your brain? Or Yeah, don't run logic through there. So if you see those, this is a bit of a PSA, all those presents that you might be getting out there for Christmas. If you're someone that thinks you're going to be harmed by 5G and you get one of these presents, just have a good look at it first before you go and Take care. wear it, put it on, or and do whatever you're going to do with it. Don't throw out your aluminium foil hat. <laughs> That's right. You probably need it with this one. And here it is, folks. Warning number 26,751 about children and unsupervised online gaming. Many children are being offered gift vouchers and in-game credits by people online. So parents, please be careful for what they may want in return. Matt, in a subject where very little should surprise us, why has this story got me rattled so much? Yeah, it was a bit like that, wasn't it? When I read it, I, I read the part where it said that the father of the child had a stomach-churning moment. And I must mm. admit, I was a bit the same when I read it. I went, oh, gee, because you imagine it's one of your kids and you know, I've got four That's kids right. and they play games and we've got... My son in particular loves playing his games. And this games. is a well-meaning parent 
who just dropped his guard for a little bit. Well, he was aware that his son was playing games and playing other online games with people and had said, be careful and don't talk to people. All the normal warnings you would give. And it was only just the fact that one person on his phone came up as BFF, best friend forever, Mm. no big deal there. But there were a number of messages that came through one day and the father finally said, I'm just a bit worried about that. Can I have a look? And the, the kid said, that's right, Dad. That's a friend of mine. He's really generous with me. And then he's, the father kind of went, generous. yeah, generous. Why does that word ring some alarm bells? And he found out that he'd been giving his son $300 vouchers, Xbox vouchers, wow. so he'd go and buy some games. In game, some of the games that you might want some in-game purchases, suddenly it would be, oh, I'll get that for you. Oh, Thanks, that's really nice. Yeah, yeah. And the grooming process takes so long. It had been about six months of this process of just slowly being a bit more generous, yeah, a bit that's nicer. that's an investment, isn't it? That's it, a, it is. A, and then after that, suddenly investment. it was, can you send me a photo of yourself or can I send you a photo of me? Mm. And then it developed from there. This started when the son was nine years of age. Yeah, so right. that's what's really scary. You think a nine-year-old, and unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, the nine-year-olds that I know are beautifully innocent and naive and would not think at any point in time would someone be out there to do harm or to take advantage of them. So if someone offered them a present, like a $300 gift voucher, they go, wow, thanks, yeah. that's really nice of you. Not thinking that they're going to expect anything in return, but of course they always do. And this is one example where one father caught it, but how many other examples are out there? Obviously there are predators out there all over the place. Well, that's it. And it's just that that little bit of investment. Yeah, I need a new skin for my Fortnite character. Um, that's pretty cheap. And oh, this guy's offering that to me. Oh, that's nice. There's another little gift that comes along and then another little gift. And then the gifts get a little bit bigger. Yep. And this, as you said, takes it took six months yeah. of, of nurturing by this predator. Um, and, and finally, um, yeah, it all came to a head. Yeah. The Australian Federal Police have have released a statement actually, not specifically about this case, but just in general. Holidays coming up, they've said that online predators were tricking children now into sending naked or sexual images by offering cash and food and gifts. So it it is a known thing Mm. that's happening. The fact that the AFP is making comment, obviously this isn't the only case they've seen. There are multiple cases you would imagine of this occurring. And again, it's one of those things, parents don't always know much about the games their kids are playing. They don't know the gameplay. They don't know how some of it works. How did you get that new character or that new skin? How did that work there? And in some games, you got it because you did well playing the game. Sometimes you might have to buy it. Sometimes someone gifts it to you. You just have to be a little bit aware of those games, which is hard work for a parent that might be completely out of touch. They might be thinking a pinball machine was the way that they wanted to play their games and suddenly Fortnite might be a bit different to that. But you've really got to get in and just quiz your kids about it. And you always want to think the best. Absolutely right. Um, Yeah, well, this story has kicked me in the bum about my trust levels and complacency about my son's online gaming. Mm. As parents, we drop our guard to our family's peril. Keep on checking in on your kids, folks. Yep. The modern-day trade-off, people. You want high levels of security, but the sheer volume of passwords needed these days and the complexity required to make a good password is doing my head in. <laughs> Matt, USB security keys have been around for a while now. Firstly, how do they work and, and what's this about them now having a level of biosecurity? Yeah, it just adds on that extra level of security. To be secure, you really want to make sure that you've got two of three things. You want to know something be somebody or have something. So know something, that's your password. If that's the only level of security, that's relatively easy for a hacker to get past. It's Mm. just one of those three levels. If it's have something, that can be 
a key. We've talked about, for example, generation number keys. Middle number generators. Yeah, 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 they yeah. generate a number, and then you have to have that, and then you type in that number as well as part of the logon process. So you have something. The USB key, the security key, is part of that process where you plug it in. I'll come back to that in a moment. And then the third thing is be somebody. So have a fingerprint or have a retinal scan, an eye scan, yeah, okay. so that that person can get in. Now, when you combine two, any two of those three things, so a password and a fingerprint, for example, or a password and a device, then you start to get pretty high levels of security. And we see a lot of that with two-factor authentication now, where people have to get a text message back to their phone. The idea here is that, and not every app, not every website, not every program that you use can work with this. It's got to be something that's compatible with it, but you can have a USB key. When you go to log in, it says, put your USB key in, you put it in, it says, oh, I recognize that USB key. That's okay. I know you've got something. In you go. Mm. Now, that might be the only level of security. It might be that and a password. But because passwords, as you said, they're so painful, mm. there's so many different ones, which one I remember for this particular site, and then I write them all down and have them stuck on a post-it note on my monitor in which someone comes <laughs> and goes, great, there's all your passwords. Thanks very much. The next level they've gone to now with USB keys those is with a bit of biosecurity. So you can have a USB key, you plug in the USB key, and then you put your fingerprint on top of that as well. So now, if someone steals that USB key, they break into your house, they steal the USB key, and you go, oh no, I've put so much trust in my USB key yeah. that I don't even have passwords on any of those sites that I use. I've just relied on that security key. They can get into all my stuff. Well, if you have the fingerprint sensor on there as well, then you're still going to have the two factors. In other words, yeah, you, put the key in, put your fingerprint on there, having and then away you go. and being someone. Exactly yeah. right. And you may not notice, if you had that USB key at the office, for example, and you go away for a holiday for a week, someone steals at the beginning of that week, you might not notice that till the end of the week and suddenly they've got in everything. At least if there's a fingerprint there, you might notice if your finger is missing as well, <laughs> hopefully. So it's one of those things that I actually think where we're headed with all this, James, is we will get to the point, uh, how long? Years? Uh, maybe five years away before we'll get to the point where we won't have passwords anymore. All this discussion we have around passwords I and how terrible it is. <laughs> it will get to that point. We're getting better with our face scans now. We're getting better with fingerprint scans and then other devices as well. I think we're getting to that stage where people are so sick of passwords and they're compromised so often that we will get something better, but not yet. Which is fine, just as long as you don't lose that USB. Don't lose the thing and don't lose your eye, don't lose your fingers. So yeah. hopefully the things that are on you are okay, but it's the device you've got to have with it. And then when you ring a company and say, can I get a replacement? Just imagine the process you'd have to go through to prove that you really are oh, who you yeah. say you are, yeah. rather than someone pretending to be you and trying to steal your identity and away you go again. Oh, well, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing more about that in the future, in um, season number five. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I like your confidence. <laughs> If you're still sceptical about the EV revolution that's occurring, then it strikes me as odd that you're still listening to this podcast, especially if, well, this isn't your first time, I should say. But if you're an EV sceptic and the 200,000 Ford F-150s on pre-order haven't swayed you, then dig down deeper in your trench, folks, because the news that GM's electric Hummers are now being delivered is just going to annoy the hell out of you. Matt, some big news here. We have talked about the Hummer because I, I love some of the specs of the Hummer and we did talk about 
the Arnie it's Schwarzenegger. It's a behemoth of a vehicle. It is. And that, it's that the image Mack of Arnie. It's a truck without being a Mack truck. <laughs> it is. They're huge. <laughs> and you see them on movies in war zones and you think, that's yeah, that's probably appropriate Arnie's for that. vehicle of choice. That's right. But then you see them travelling down the streets of California and you go, really? Do they need that? <laughs> it's a tank without tracks, really, is the way I see a Hummer. So when we talked about it before, that the Hummers were coming in an EV model, we went, no, that doesn't fit. You expect to see, mm. as you say, Arnie with a cigar sitting there yeah. and making lots of noise because that's lots what you've got to do when you're big and tough, and roaring down the main street of California. With the fumes pouring out the exhaust pipe. Have a, a tanker beside you pouring the fuel in and you yeah. burn it as fast <laughs> as you can actually do it. But an EV Hummer made a lot of sense because an EV is so powerful and they're now saying to ship out Hummer's EV Edition 1 are now in driveways of customers. Any people in America listen to this, congratulations if you've got that Hummer parked <laughs> in your driveway. And the specs are impressive. I'll just remind people from when we talked about it before, 750 kilowatts of power, 1,350 newton metres of torque. I apologise to the American listeners, I'm not in foot pounds there, I'm in metric <laughs> versions there. And about 530 kilometre range. Now when you've got something as big as that, obviously wow. with that much power, then having that range just means you've got a big battery. And that's a way a lot of companies are addressing the problem. But still, being as big as they are, it'll still do zero to 100 in three seconds. <laughs> if you said to me years ago, I've got a Ferrari that does zero to 103 seconds, or a yeah, Lamborghini, a supercar, amazing. you'd go, that's pretty good, because four seconds was really the general cutoff mark to get to that supercar sort of status. Yeah. So to have this thing, as you say, a behemoth, to get That's zero to hundred, hardly aerodynamic. <laughs> it's not, is it at all? Get zero to hundred in three seconds. That's pretty impressive. But it also has some other cool features. So, for example, it does crab walk, where it turns the wheels sideways, uh, so you can parking. actually go. So, well, for parking, but I think it's more if you're out stuck in the bush somewhere and you need to get up a tricky little oh, bit okay. of area, you can just kind of turn the wheels a bit sideways and just start to crab walk sideways. But we're talking about these driving around the streets of LA, right? I well, don't. Know. People take them out in the bush. <laughs> Do they ever get mud <laughs> on them? Dirty. <laughs> You're right. So it's probably used for getting into tight parking spots. You see a parking spot a normal car can get into. Oh, I never fit my Hummer in there. But now, but hey, no, I've got crab, crab walk. They did pitch it as being out in the bush. But okay. Maybe that All was right. the image that they that. wanted to portray to people. And they can trick themselves into believing that. That's right. And they throw a bit of mud on it when you get it from the factory probably. But the other thing it does is you can raise the suspension by 15 centimetres. Again, they say to go over some large rocks or some water, but probably it's because you've got a steep driveway that you need to get up. Or it could be at a monster truck show <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, you could right. be driving over other cars. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Put some bigger wheels on, raise the suspension by 15 centimetres and away you go. <laughs> so that's the EV Edition 1, which again is out there in driveways now. $110,000 US for that. So it's not a cheap vehicle, but the Hummers, the normal petrol Hummers weren't cheap either. Yeah, so that's right. If you get a four-bottle of those, you could probably a four-bottle of these. They've got a few other models coming out as well. They've got the Hummer EV3X. They've got a 2X. They've got a another one they're just calling a, a, a pickup truck. So essentially, they've got a few different models there. Most of the difference there is just the power. In other words, the acceleration speed, probably a bit less, and the range. So the cheapest one has still got a 400 kilometer range. The EV2 is still at 400k range, which isn't too bad. Some of those will be available a bit later on, but it's happening, folks. It is happening out there right now. Yeah, as and, you, and you talked about the, the higher price there, but it's only for the time being. That's that's what the price is now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it set to come down, perhaps? Uh, yeah. Probably, as, as volume goes up. I, I think you're right. And I don't actually know. I should have looked up that before we started. Sorry. increases as well. Yeah, that's right. The F-150 will be a competitor, you would imagine, for the Hummer. But I should look up the price tag to see what a normal Hummer was. 
But I imagine it's a bit cheaper than that 110 for the top-of-the-line Hummer petrol version. But again, the running costs. How much does it cost you to fuel mm. this up versus fueling up a petrol version? It's a lot cheaper, like that taxi driver I talked about. It's a lot cheaper to run these. So even though you might pay a bit more, the running costs, and if you do a few Ks in it, it's going to easily make it up. You'd have to be refueling your Hummer every day anyway, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I wonder how big a fuel tank they have on them. $100 tank each time, $150 <laughs> tank. For students who love science, there is so much wow factor, and teaching science is fun because of that. But I tell students all the time that they are highly unlikely to get rich pursuing science as a career. You've got to be in it for the love. Except now, there are some boom industries in science, and developing new materials is the mother of them all. So for the people who've made windows that block heat from radiating into your house when you don't want it, and trap heat from escaping outside your house when you do want to keep it in the house, Surely now they have a licence to print money. Matt, tell us about these amazing energy-saving windows. What kind of magic are you talking about there, James? Surely you're making this up. It does sound like it, doesn't it? So do your students, when you tell them they're not going to make money out of it, do they say, well, the Echoes class looks pretty good. I'll go into economics (laughs) instead. I get so many, how can I get rich out of science? Well, sorry, you've chosen the wrong path. Yeah, isn't the old joke that if you want to be a millionaire scientist, start with 10 million? And do science for a few years and you'll yeah. be back to a million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, it is absolutely amazing. I think you're right. This, the people that can get this to the commercial level mm. will be able to print money because it just sounds amazing. They've taken, for a start, vanadium dioxide or an oxide of vanadium, and it has this phase-shifting concept that at 68 degrees Celsius, it will stop infrared from coming through or allow infrared to go through. That's the, the temperature that it changes phase. So you say, well, that's great if I've got a condo I'm going to build on mercury, for example. Yeah. But here on Earth, 68 degrees doesn't sound like something that's going to be that relevant to my day-to-day life and how I might protect my house. But they've then, and I just I love this concept here, they've taken some tungsten and just doped vanadium dioxide with some tungsten. Now, how did they come up with tungsten? How much did they come up with? The process of the experimentation to get that I just love the idea. Well, tungsten's got a very high specific heat capacity, and so that makes it uh, p- pretty good for doping. So that would be right. why they probably chose it. We use it in things like uh, X-ray tubes. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah but anyway, yeah, sorry, I, I digress. I'll, let's no, keep no, going with that. that's fine, because whether that was the first substance they came up with because of that or the 50th substance they came up with, I don't know. But they didn't come up with it straight away. They had to work away. But they've been able to manage to create this substance now, then instead of being 68 degrees Celsius, it's 28 degrees Celsius. And I'm sure a bit of fine-tuning, you might find that it should be 26 or 25, not 28. There might be a bit of fine-tuning there. But ultimately, they've now got a substance that they can put on a window. And exactly as you said, it's the middle of summer. You don't want all that heat coming into your house, which is heating up your house, which your air conditioner has to then be used to cool down your house, obviously chewing up supposedly at the moment, unless you've got a good range of solar panels, you're chewing up lots of fossil fuels to cool down your house. So at 28 degrees, it then says, I'm going to stop that heat from coming in. I'm going to block infrared rays coming in and I'm going to reflect those out so it keeps your house cooler. But in the middle of the night or when it's below 28 degrees, middle of winter, for example, you want as much heat coming in as possible. So the phase change of that substance says... I'm going to allow the heat to come in. Now, of course, it doesn't say that. It just happens automatically. There's no electricity feeding in. There's nothing you've got to do physically. It's just a coating on the outside that changes phase to allow infrared to come through or not. And that's just magical. So this is on windows at the moment. But you can imagine 
on the rooftops, and they've done some yeah. experimentation with rooftops. You can imagine on cars, you jump in the car in the middle of summer, it's very hot, jump in the middle of winter, it's very cold. So that ability to have that phase change, I just, I think that's absolutely Well, magical. windows are amazing, uh, but, you know, infrared can pass through any uh, solid object. Yeah, yes. it just gets absorbed by the solid object and the object radiates it um, on the other side. So putting that on a rooftop, for example, yeah. would make sense. So just imagine coating your entire house. You probably don't need the brick walls on the outside, but coating all the areas that you lose it. So the estimation of the amount of energy that's used, that's lost through windows or gained through windows, whether it's heating or cooling, is about 4% in the US, about 4% of all energy use. Wow. If you just suddenly took all windows away from a house, that's how much energy you'd save. So 4%, you go, oh, 4% is not much, but 4% of total energy use is just Actually quite two windows. It is, yeah, when you start to think about and when that. When we talk to kids, you know, when we're teaching science, that um, that during the heat of summer, you want to trap that heat out, you've got to draw your blinds. You've got to close your curtains to try and keep that heat out. Yep. Um, and in the middle of winter, you want to keep the heat in, so you've got to draw those curtains. <laughs> so there's a small window of maybe six or seven months where you can have those windows open. But then that's there's right. five months where you've got to have them closed and... You and no one ever does it because it's too much of a hassle to go yeah, and change the line. So <laughs> I know my teacher said to do that, but yeah. oh, who could be bothered doing that? So having a substance on the windows, it just does that for you automatically. Um, and and who knows, changer. they might get to the point where they can say you can buy this one at 28 and this one at 26 and this one at 24. They may not decide on an exact temperature that's the best temperature. You choose which model you want. Who knows? Yeah, the, right. the, the possibilities here... I think it's just absolutely endless. I, I just think of a motorbike helmet. I know when I'm riding a motorbike out in a, on a sunny day, you do actually feel a fair bit of heat in your head. So having a coating on your motorbike helmet, like all these different things, you can cope with it. just sounds fantastic. Material science kids, physics and chemistry, get into it and study hard in your HSC. And I suppose that is right, isn't it? It's probably a combination of physics and chemistry, isn't mm. it? There's some, some chemistry at work there, but also the physics. Yeah. Absolutely. Solar panels are a fantastic solution for efficient, accessible and clean energy. And it's no surprise that the take-up in Australia has been extraordinary. But some folks, for one reason or another, would if they could, but sadly can't. We'll cheer up people because, with just a smidge of initiative, the concept of communal solar gardens is becoming a thing. And you can get your dose of green energy, along with some good old-fashioned community spirit. Matt... This solar garden idea is a cracker. It is a cracker. I actually love your wood if you could, but you can't. Mm. It sounds like something you'd say to your kids sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, can I do that? Well, you would if you could, but you can't. <laughs> but it's right. One of the, the big things I hear about a lot, because we are good in this country in terms of adopting solar panels on the rooftops of our houses. so much solar energy. We, we have got so much solar energy and we are good at it. But the problem I hear from some people is I live in a rental house. Now, it's not good for the renter to put solar panels on because they've just paid for solar panels and the owner of the house the has got landlord. the benefit of that yeah. and they're getting the benefit on their electricity bill but they might move out in three months' time and they're not going to take their solar panels with them. The landlord doesn't want to put solar panels on the house because the benefit goes to the tenant with mm. their cheaper electricity bill. So no one's going to get benefit mm. from it, so neither party does it. And we've still got a fair few people that rent homes in this nation. So rental homes typically don't have solar panels and apartment blocks typically don't have solar panels because you might have a 20-storey apartment a couple of hundred units or apartments in there and a little tiny bit of roof space up top, well, there's not much point putting some solar panels up there. There's not enough surface area. So the whole idea of a solar garden or a community garden that has solar panels on it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely makes a lot of sense. But the really clever part they've done here is they've actually got it to the point where you can be an owner or a part of the solar garden, but the credit comes back on your electricity bill 
just like you if you had solar panels on your rooftop. So you, you have fantastic. a you have a little solar array somewhere. It doesn't really matter where it is. It doesn't have to be near you. It can be anywhere else in the nation. And you own, in inverted commas, a little part of that. So you might own two or three kilowatts of that. And then the concept goes that that is linked back to your bill and whatever electricity generated by the whole solar array, your little part of that goes back to your electricity bill. So at the moment, they've only got one in the nation. That's the only downside. There's one in Lismore, and it's only a 35-kilowatt solar array, so not that large. Many people have 10 kilowatts on their roof already, so 35 is not much. But it's a test bed. They've given it a go. It seems to be working. There's no one being built down in the Riverina area. A one-megawatt system, which is consisting of 333 kilowatt plots. So you can buy your three kilowatt plot. You'll pay about $4,000, just over $4,000 to own the plot. But then you've got a three kilowatt array, just as if you'd installed it on your roof. And then yeah, it feeds right. back on your electricity bill. So you might get credits. You might, I don't know, you might get $1,000 worth of credits a year. So you're getting that back on your electricity bill. You pay it off in a few years' time and then you're in front forever more. You change houses. You're a renter. You're an owner where you can't put a solar panel on your roof for whatever reason. You've got that link to your electricity bill forevermore. It just sounds like a great idea. Solutions instead of problems. Absolutely right. Spot mm. on, actually. Now, the convenience of filling up your car at a petrol station is soon going to be overtaken by the even greater convenience of simply parking your car and letting wireless induction charging do the hard work to keep your car charged up nicely. Matt, overseas, they've started this already. And in a year where they experienced a fuel crisis supply, you know, sorry, a fuel supply crisis in the UK. This charge while you park is a pretty solid incentive to go EV. It is a solid incentive. And I think the EV owners of the world have got to thank mobile phone manufacturers because we now all are experts on wireless charging. Yeah. We know about induction. We know how we can sit the phone near or on our wireless charge and it does some sort of magic hocus pocus and your phone's charged up. More Fantastic. Science More science magic. That's exactly it. So the idea here is that you can park your car in certain spots. So in the UK, they're trialling it in a number of different spots at the moment where they'll just put the wireless charging infrastructure underneath the ground in parking spots. And all you've got to do is have your EV fitted with some induction charging pads on the, bo- on the bottom of it. Now, that's not a completely foreign concept. There are kits you can buy for any EV at the moment. You can plug in your wireless charging pad on the garage floor, for example, in your home. You plug it into your normal electrical circuit and you have the pad installed on the bottom of your car. So when you drive in your garage, you just park your car and voila, Off it just go. starts charging magically, just like putting your phone on a wireless charging pad. So that's great. But the problem for some EV owners is they don't have a garage. They might live in an apartment block, throwing an electrical cable out the 10th floor, dangling down to the <laughs> ground and plugging into your car out in the street probably isn't going to work that well. And that's where this company is focused. The company is called Chargy, C-H-A-R dot G-Y. And they've already got various lamp posts throughout England where you've actually got charging infrastructure in the lamp post. So you can plug or park beside those lamp posts, plug in your car and away you go. But they found that that was a bit clumsy, having to get out of your car and plug in this cable. Mm. So why not do it with wireless charging pads? So where they're having some of those charging cables from a lamppost, they're now installing wireless charging pads. You'll literally drive your car up to that parking spot and get in your car and walk away, and it's charging up for you. Isn't this amazing? I mean, we come from a generation that has gotten out of their car to grab, go to the fuel bowser, grab the pump and put that in, but now it's considered an inconvenience to go <laughs> to get the plug and, and have to worry about maintenance of the plug as well. I guess yeah, that whole charging station requires a bit of maintenance too. Um, yeah, we're just now, I just want to pull up and then walk off and have my car get filled. In a few years' time, you'll be saying, what? I've got a 
plug in? What sort of backward place is this? Where's my wireless charging pad? I mean, you've got to install it on your car as well, but that's a fairly common way to do it. And so you'll probably see cars, the same as wireless charging standard is there for mobile phones. You can have an Android phone or an Apple phone or a Pixel phone, whatever brand you prefer, and they all conform to the same wireless charging standard. So you have your mm. wireless charger, any phone that lined with that standard can plug into that or sit on top of it. So I imagine that at some point in time, someone will say, hey, all our EV manufacturers out there, why don't we just build this in as part of the car? Standardise it. Yeah, rather yeah. than have it as aftermarket. And so many things over the years, James, we've seen aftermarket become standardised. I remember my brother when he put a radio with, get ready for it, a CD player in it, and he's old Valiant. That was, wow, a CD player in your car. How cool is that? And now, well, actually, you don't get them anymore. It it, it was all CDs in cars for standard, and now you can't get them because everyone just streams with Bluetooth or whatever they might do. So, again, things that become aftermarket and become popular sometimes then become standard. So maybe it's a few years away yet, but maybe it'll become standard to have wireless charging once we agree on a standard for all those EVs out there. Well, it requires us to all go out and get an EV right now. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly Tomorrow. right. <laughs> now, there's a number of features of the human physical form that we tend to take for granted, but are really, really, really hard to replicate in robots. One of those things is our hand. Now, sure, we've worked out how to make a machine with an opposable thumb and anywhere between two and four hinged fingers decades ago. Well, big deal. But the challenge is in getting the machine to detect pressure, particularly for a very delicate and fine precision grip. We humans detect required pressure fairly easily without really thinking about it. So it's not so easy for a robot. But we are almost there, Matt. Almost there. I actually wonder whether, and I'm not sure if this is just me making it up or whether it's something that's got some basis in science, but whether our fingernails actually help in the pressure detection. So in other words, if we didn't have fingernails... fingernails. Because it's got something to push against. So when we pick something up with our hand, Hmm. whether or not that little bit of hard surface on the other side allows us to detect pressure a bit better. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I do know that the little finger has a purpose and its job is to detect pressure. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So I I shouldn't lose my little finger. I should keep it. Yeah, it's a keeper. Yeah, right. Because a few guys I race mountain bikes with have lost their little finger. Oh, really? Yeah, you kind of... Because of mountain biking? Well, you tend to clip on trees sometimes. I've done it, but I haven't lost mine or either of mine yet. But I've actually got my... Uh, I've got little grips that have got little protectors that stick out the side because I'm a bit old and soft these days. I I didn't like keep clipping my little fingers. But yeah, I've got a couple of those. That is hardcore to take that... (laughs) That mountain biking corner, a little bit too hard, yeah, too close to the tree, and then lose a finger in the process. You don't mean to do it. It's just sometimes you just push it a bit hard and dirt gets a bit slippery and there's a tree there. And yeah. So yeah. again, I've caught some of mine, but I've got these little wussy soft bars that everyone laughs at me for, but I've still got my little fingers. Well, the story goes that the, the little finger doesn't even have to make contact. It's just the, the balance of the little finger. Sometimes right. we do use it. If you're going to pluck a, a tomato off a vine, yep. yeah, you'd be using a little finger there, but... Just having it nearby, it is your little pressure. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I anyway. should research that on fingernails because mm. I just don't know what other purpose the fingernail has except to give you something to bite while you're yeah, driving yeah. a car. So. Scratch yourself. <laughs> yeah, scratch. Maybe that's it. Yeah, Open. and maybe it's an overhang from claws. We used to have claws. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it helps you to pull the ring tab on a can of software. Well, that's true too. Yeah. All these essential uses for it. <laughs> so anyway, back to the topic at hand. A gecko. Now, I've never really looked no that closely. There. No fingernails there. I've never really looked closely at a gecko as to how a gecko can go up a vertical surface, especially when it's something like glass. I thought it was like suction caps or something, but I think I'm wrong. Well, I I actually thought the same where it relied on some sort of partial vacuum it might create underneath the 
paw, the, the, mm. the fingers, and then obviously air pressure around the outside keeps it on there. But it actually uses something a little bit different, and they, they call them a spatula-like tip that actually allows the surface area to increase when the gecko pulls in one direction. So in other words, it puts its fingers on a bit of glass and pulls down. And that expands the little spatula-like tips to give maximum surface area. And then it relies on van der Waals forces just to hold the fingers on there. And then when they push their finger the other direction, it contracts those. And so it reduces the surface area. And then they can lift their fingers up and move it along. So just to qualify, the van der Waals forces, if you're a chemistry student, there are three types of intermolecular uh, force. That's uh, forces between molecules. And the van der Waals forces are the dispersion forces, or the weaker ones. Mm. There's um, there's dipole-dipole forces and and hydrogen bonds. We'll we'll get into those later. (laughs) Um, But the van der Waals forces are actually quite weak. But obviously strong enough. Strong enough for a gecko, which obviously doesn't have a, a lot of mass associated with it, but mm. obviously strong enough there. So that's the scientist. And I, I love the fact that we research this sort of thing from a scientific perspective. And then someone says, hey, I could use that because yeah. nature's pretty clever. And so now what they've come up with is a robotic hand that does essentially the same thing. What it does is when it grips something like a tomato or an egg or something you've got to be delicate with, it actually grips it and then just moves the hand in one direction to try and expand that surface area and use, again, van der Waals forces to hold that on there. And then when it releases it, it lets it back go in the other direction. Yeah, wow. The answer to everything, I've said it before, the answer to every science question is... Surface area. And that's exactly what it does here. It moves those fingers in such a way that it increases that surface area, van der Waals forces go to work, and then it can grip it very lightly. Now, why do we care about any of this? Well, one of the things that you'll use robotic hands for is in picking fruits, picking a whole range of vegetables and fruits, I suppose, but things that are used in the farming sector because it's hard to get people to come and work in those sectors now. Mm. So you've got farmers who do all this great work growing these great crops and then they say, it's it's right to go. Who wants to come and pick tomatoes? And no one's there, mm. and especially with COVID times. There's been a lack of backpackers travelling around the world. That was the way they used to fund themselves travelling around the world. Of course, that hasn't been there. So robotics will be used in a whole range of things. You don't want a heavy-handed robot picking a tomato, grabbing hold of it tight enough to rip it off the vine and you end up with maybe tomato soup. So you want a nice delicate touch, but you don't want it so delicate that it slips through the fingers and then starts to bruise the tomato from that perspective. And that's where they're headed with this type of grip. So they've got the grip now that it works. It gets enough pressure to hold it. It uses van der Waals forces to grip it and then can hold it very lightly and know that it's not going to drop it. I can imagine there's some applications in surgery as well. I think there's a whole range. And I think what happens so many times in science is someone comes up with an idea, they come up with a solution to problems that they didn't know they had, and then people say, hey, I can use that in, and next thing you know there's a whole range of different areas that could be used in. But you could. You could see it being used in a whole range of ways, anything that needed a soft touch. And I'm still waiting for that robot i haven't got my kids to do it yet but that robot that'll just come and cook those eggs for me in the morning pick <laughs> up the robot just right break it in the way it needs to be broken don't break it on the way don't from the sm- fridge to the mash it no that's right. right i don't want scrambled eggs with the shell inside thanks very much so there are a whole range of other uses but just getting this right in the first place i can imagine the scientists doing this and they're at stanford university they would be extremely excited when they finally got to that point where they were replicating what a gecko does naturally <laughs> <laughs> Here's some news from the Big Apple, and I think this might have something to do with your story earlier on in the in the episode. The iconic New York taxi cab is set for a 21st century facelift as the fleet rolls on into the EV market. Matt, 
these EVs are really starting to catch on. I remember the first time I was ever in New York and I wanted to just jump in one of the yellow cabs just because I'd seen it on the Simpsons the so many times. And just, yeah. they're so iconic, those yellow take cabs. Take me to the Bronx. <laughs> well, I just said, take me around the corner. Like, I just want to <laughs> be in the yellow, the yellow cab. But you're right, they are moving forward now. And so we're getting Ford Mustang Mach-E taxis in New York. They'll look like a normal yellow taxi cab. They'll have all the standard livery that you would expect to see on a taxi. They'll have an angry taxi driver in it too. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's compulsory. <laughs> and, and someone that spilled a bit of food over himself while he's been eating his lunch in the taxi. But they'll be Mustang Mac-E's. Now, Mustang Mac-E's, we have talked about them before. They are absolute rockets in terms of the EV world, as you'd mm-hmm. expect. You have a Mustang, the good old-fashioned Mustang V8, then they went pretty fast. So the Mustang Mac-E does the same thing, but probably a little bit better. They need that acceleration to get into that quick little space, that's uh, that gap that's been made in the third lane across. And so they can then go along at 10 kilometres an hour for the rest <laughs> of the trip through New York. But there's a company called Gravity that's got some Mustang Mach-E's. They've got 50 they're bringing into the fleet. They've also got some Tesla Model Ys, and they like the Tesla Model Ys. They think they're a good solution in terms of the size, the amount of bags they can fit in, trip out to the airport, whatever it might be. There's another company in New York that's actually got some Tesla Model 3s. So you go to New York at the moment, you're probably having a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to get into a classic yellow cab, but it's going to be a modern EV. So mixing the old with the new. Now, their solution, I mean, I talked about that taxi driver before, and I kind of talked about the taxi driver going home and charging up overnight. They're actually going to have a garage that'll have a bunch of fast chargers there, so you won't need to park it overnight. You might need to come in, change drivers, or Mm. come in and have your lunch at a desk rather than having it in the taxi. And they've got some 350 kilowatt chargers that'll charge up that very quickly. But again, it's just, it's moving ahead. And I, if there were a bunch of taxis lined up there and I saw one was an EV, I'd be going, I want that one, thanks. And they say, no, you've got to take the one at the front of the queue. I said, well, I'll just wait here until that one comes to the front of the queue (laughs) because I don't want to get these old petrol things. I want that one there. Uh, We talked about it before as well. Hertz, for example, have got their 100,000 car order with Tesla. And we thought that was initially throughout Europe and America, but it's actually going to be in Australia as well. You'll see some Tesla Hertzes or Hertz Teslas, I'm not sure which way around, in Australia as well. But that's it's just getting to that point where people will be in them as taxis, they'll be in them as hire cars, and they'll go, what the heck, I might as well get one for my car as well. It's time for the Aussies to keep up with the Joneses, I think. <laughs> Absolutely right, if everyone in America is called Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and that closes off our first episode for the new year. We're off to a cracking start with that one, Matt. Setting a high standard, if I do say so myself. Well, why not? If we can't give ourselves praise, then who can give us praise? So let's keep going with this standard. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm James Eddy, and it's a pleasure to bring you another Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Don't forget to tune in again next week. Thank you.